Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for tonight's program. But for some people, reading the Bible is like picking up a random piece of a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle without a box lid. They pick up this thing, it's got bumps and like what the heck is that and it just doesn't make any sense at all and they go I just can't get anything out of my Bible I'll go well of course not you need to see the box lead you need to see how it all fits together toward the end of the Old Testament comes the prophet Zechariah prophesying after the Israelites exile in Babylon he encouraged the rebuilding of the temple but it was more than just bricks and mortar Tonight, Dr. Corbett is beginning a series in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. So let's dive in and see what treasures an Old Testament prophet can teach us today. Let's join Dr. Corbett now as he introduces Zechariah. When I started here, officially September 24, 1995, so this is my sort of my 25th anniversary today, I, I had it as part of my motive, part of my goal, part of my agenda was that I wanted to preach through the Bible. And one of the great advantages of being a senior pastor is that I don't have to say everything at once. I can say it over as long as it takes to make a clip. So I've managed to preach through every book of the Bible but two so far. And today we will be dealing with the, one of the two that I haven't dealt with. But it is one over the last five years that I've been looking at and not that anyone would particularly care this much but there's a fair bit of, there's a fair bit of controversy about this book. Uh, I won't go into some of the detail about the controversy but I will say this, this morning I will be dealing with some of the historical background which relates to the controversy and I'll briefly mention the controversy and I'm doing that because I want our young people who are either in primary school or high school who aspire to, as Norm said, to give their lives to Christ and do something great for Jesus. And that may mean that they end up going to university. It doesn't have to mean that, but it could mean that. And going to a secular university can be absolutely brutal for someone who has enjoyed the Christian bubble for most of their life. And sometimes the attacks on Christianity and the God of the Bible are ill-founded. But unless we're in a, a context where you know what the foundation is, the founding of, of God's word, you can be caught off guard. So I'm, I'm, ask, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite apologising. I'm, I'm asking for you just to bear with me a little bit this morning because I, I want to give something to people who engage with people who are not just atheists, but nasty atheists. So that's a part of what I want to do this morning. The other part of what I want to do is shepherd you. I want to be your pastor, and I want to be your pastor not by coming up with brilliant philosophy and just wonderful ideas, and I've never been the kind of pastor, as you'll know, who's found a good joke and then looked for a Bible text to go with it. I've never done that. So what I want to do is help you to understand this incredibly important book of the Bible. And what we're going to be dealing with is the book of Zechariah. And I've called him the exiled prophet. And you'll see why in a moment. Now even the fact that I even use that term, exiled 
proffered. I hope that by the time we're done today, you go, ah, exile, right, okay, yeah, that's in, it's in Matthew chapter 1. It actually becomes one of the, the delineating points in the genealogy of Jesus, the, his, the, the lineage of Jesus, that there was an exile. And it, it's a significant date on the calendar for the Jewish community, for Israel. So in order to get what's happened, where we're at, for those who don't know, Zechariah is the second last book of the Old Testament. He's considered a minor prophet, but Martin Luther said, for a minor prophet, his book is longer than some of the major prophets. So Martin Luther pointed out that Zechariah, now that's, when I say, when I say Martin Luther, I, sometimes people think civil rights leader during the 1960s. Um, this is the original Martin Luther who lived sort of in the 1500s, by the way. He didn't found the Lutheran church, it was sort of founded in uh, memory of him. But Zechariah is the most quoted prophet during the final week of Jesus in the New Testament. So for each of the gospel writers, they refer to Zechariah's book more than any other prophetic book. The book of Revelation, apart from Ezekiel, the book of Revelation quotes the book of Zechariah more than any other prophetic book. Now you, you gotta, I hope you, you, you go, that's amazing. And it is amazing because there's 14 chapters in Zechariah. There's 66 in Isaiah. There's 52 in Jeremiah. There's Ezekiel's got 50. I mean, good grief. How does a 14-chapter book feature so often in the, called the Passion of Christ and the book of Revelation? Well, the answer to that is that's what he's speaking to. So in Zechariah, and I'll paint the historical background in a moment, he's actually talking to a people, but then as a lot of the prophets did, they talk here and then suddenly God lifts their vision and he begins to talk way beyond them. And the challenge that we have when we read Zechariah, and, and I even... Uh, I think last night I went through and I started to highlight in, in orange all the, the bits that relate to that moment when Christ was taken from Gethsemane and then taken to the cross. And it's amazing, orange in nearly every column where you think, wow, he had a lot, he had a lot to prophesy about this. So it's one of these things where if I was an atheist skeptic and I read this, I'd go, well, there's no doubt Zechariah lived when he lived. There's no doubt about that. There's no doubt that his book was written at that time, around 500 BC. There's just, oh, sorry, 538 BC. There's no doubt about that. How the heck did this guy predict what Christ would go through 500 years before the event so accurately? If I was a skeptic, I would backslide. I'd have to backslide into Christianity because this is another, another convincing proof that God is speaking through this particular book. So to get this, the exiled prophet, I need to explain to you the story of redemption. And if you're tracking with me in our daily Bible reading, what day are you up to, Karen? 24, that's brilliant. Uh, Alistair, who's not here this morning, because he probably knew I was going to pick him out right now, he said he was up to day 50. 
and then he stopped. If he's watching my webcast, you slacker. Today is day 271, by the way. But if you're tracking with me in that daily Bible reading that, we, that I'm putting out on YouTube, so every day I'm putting a YouTube video out where we're going through the Bible. And if you track with me, we'll be done right through the Bible in a year. But what I'm showing you, what I hope I'm showing you, is that if you just read the Bible in bit, it just looks like, and the, the picture I give is a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle scattered on a dining table with no box. So you've got no box lid. I mean, yeah, I don't have time to do jigsaws, but if I did, I definitely would want the jigsaw box lid right beside me as I'm trying to put it together. I don't know anyone who does a jigsaw puzzle without knowing at least what they're trying to put together. But for some people, reading the Bible is like picking up a random piece of a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle without a box lid. They pick up this thing, it's got bumps and like what the heck is that and it just doesn't make any sense at all and they go I just can't get anything out of my Bible I'll go well of course not you need to see the box lid you need to see how it all fits together and it would be very easy to read a book like Zechariah and go tick done without going hang on a minute not only is this a piece of the like a vital piece of the jigsaw puzzle it's actually foreground centerpiece stuff so this is really important, what we're about to see. And what we would see if we, if we did have the jigsaw box lid, we would see that the story of redemption begins with creation. So in the beginning, God created. And so then, it, and then man fell. So we have the fall of mankind. And I've heard some people say, oh, and then Adam and Eve fell from grace, you know, fall from grace. No, <laughs> they fell into sin and they fell into grace. Then, Next highlight is Abraham, who started off as Abram, but then God put his name into Abram because of the Hebrew name for God is Yahweh. And so right in the middle of Abram is Ach, Ach, the Yah of, of Abraham, the God of Abraham. And then the next highlight in the story of redemption is the Exodus. And the Exodus features over and over and over. It's the most significant aspect of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, it's the closest parallel that the New Testament writers have to describe what it's like to be a Christian. And they describe it in terms of come out of Egypt and all this sort of stuff and where that is a picture of coming to Christ in the New Testament. So the Exodus is really, really important. And when they came out of, out of Egypt, the Exodus, they came to Mount Sinai where they received the law. And they received a law that was already written on their heart. It says in Romans 2. So again, we, this is a piece of the jigsaw and over in Romans 2 is another. And you, you put it all together. And then God's plan was for them to not stay there. So they've come out, picture of salvation. They've received the law, picture of good works. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. This is the gift of God. Verse 10, for you are created in Jesus Christ for, anyone know the next two words? Good works. So the law says this is what you're to do and not to do. And so this is, again, it tracks the story of redemption. It tracks this is what it's like to become a Christian. And then as a Christian, we're heading somewhere. We're heading into a land, so to speak, a spiritual land, that, the, that in the Old Testament it was 
it was pictured as called the promised land. The promised land. And interestingly, when they came into the promised land, God hadn't gone ahead of them in the sense of, I'll take care of all the enemies and I'll, I'll get rid of all them and I'll, I'll clean it up and I'll get rid of all the idolatry and I'll get rid of all the sin and I'll get rid of all the criminal activity of which there was a lot. He didn't do that. He actually said, when you go in, that's what you're to do. Get rid of the sin, get rid of the idolatry, get rid of the criminal activity. And isn't that a picture of our life as well? God promises all these promises and he says, now you've got to fight for them. Each day it's a fight. Each day you've got to get rid of sin, get rid of idolatry, get rid of the tendency to immorality and so on. And then along in this story of redemption, of course, Israel said, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. God said, okay, I'll give you the king that you think you want. They got that king and it was a disaster. Then God said, okay, I'll give you the king I think you need. And his name was David and so King David becomes a big deal in the story of redemption because Jesus is described as the son of David or the descendant of David and it's a big deal and it presents Christ as the ultimate king so this is the story of redemption and then the the tragedy is that God had said in the covenant that they got when they got the ten commandments he gave them that the law, the law of Moses. But then he said, now here's, that, that's that. Now we're going to come up with an agreement, you and me. That's called a covenant. And a covenant is not a contract, but a covenant does have conditions. And the covenant was, I will be your God, you will be my people. And this is how it's going to work. You won't have any other gods apart from me. I'm a jealous God. I'm the kind of God that says, I will bless you if you keep the covenant and we see in the closing two chapters of of Leviticus the closing two chapters of Deuteronomy it gives the conditions of the covenant and this is a picture of again the new the new covenant that it's not Jesus plus anyone else or Jesus or anyone else it's just Jesus he's the only way of salvation and so what happened in that when God said You as a nation will be my people. I will be your God. But if you forsake me and turn away from me, all of these promises that I've promised to you, you will forfeit. And it says in the law where the covenant is spelled out, if you forsake me, I will expel you from the land. And some people today debate whose land is that promised land and the answer is always the same it's always the same but very often not heard and the answer is God's it's God's it's God in fact the whole earth is God's and so when God said you be faithful to me you can stay in the land you can flourish you'll prosper you'll enjoy more than enough but if you don't you'll turn your back on all that And the land will spew you out, it says. And that is exactly what happened. They turned their back on God. And they were exiled, which means for this brief time in history, empire builders had this idea that not only was the wealth of their empire in gold and silver, it was in people as well. So when Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem, he was the son of the emperor at the time, and we'll explain that in a moment. He took away the best and the brightest 
of the people of Jerusalem. That included Daniel, it included Ezekiel, it included a whole raft of other highly educated young people. Daniel would have been about 14, 14 years of age when he was taken to Babylon. And this, this is called the exile and it happened in two waves with Nebuchadnezzar taking the people out of Jerusalem. And when the Babylonians did that, the final exile happened as a, a conquest. In other words, it was a military thing where Nebuchadnezzar came in, he killed those who were resisting them and his forces destroyed the temple block upon block. The temple was destroyed. Now this is a big deal. The temple was destroyed. The prophet Jeremiah had said during this time, he's prophesying during this time, that you will go into exile for 70 years, then you shall return. And when you return, the temple will be rebuilt. Ezekiel said it. You look at the closing chapters of Ezekiel. He is, Ezekiel's one of these young men taken to Babylon. He was about uh, 19, 20 at the time when he was taken away. And he prophesied that the temple would be rebuilt. And when they came back from exile, that was one of the first things they started to do, rebuild the temple. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. And then the story of redemption goes at, at a climax here in the Old Testament. And this is what we'll see here in Zechariah. They are now awaiting the Messiah. That's the story of redemption through the Old Testament. A testament is a record of a covenant. So we refer to the, 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 the first part of our Bible as the testament. And inside there you'll see the details of the Old Covenant. So I will use those two terms differently. So I was reading a female uh, commentator, Joyce Baldwin, who summed up everything I've just told you in four words. Now you're probably going, oh, why didn't you just say that then? This is what she said. The whole tragic story of Israel could be summed up in the sequence. Chosen, privileged, presumptuous, rebellious. Not a great story, is it? But that was the story of Israel. So now we come to this book, the second last book of the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. And I remind you of what Jeremiah had said. I just mentioned that he said this, but this is what he says. Thus says the Lord, this is Jeremiah 29 verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. We read in one of the, uh, if not the closing chapter of Second Chronicles, uh, chapter 36, probably, probably put together by Ezra, he says this. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, we just read it, might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. 
2 Chronicles 36 verse 23 says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord, his God, be with him. Let him go up. Now, we see the, the Babylonian Empire, which I'm, I'm going to give you some detail about in a moment because it's important to understand this. And this is where I want those who will go to university and be confronted with, with some nasty types. I'll give you some information which may help. But we also, I mentioned that Daniel was one of the people that was taken in the first group of exiles to, to Babylon. Now, I'm going to draw a map for you in the air. Mediterranean Sea. The boot, Italy, right? Over here. Come over here. The coast where you've got Israel down here. Below Israel, a place called Ashkelon. It's mentioned in the Old Testament as you read through it. The kingdom of Israel was divided when they got into a fight, north and south. And the north forsook God very quickly. And they were taken away to a place called Assyria. And Assyria, now here's, here's my map. You got this? Here's Israel here, Mediterranean Sea here. For those over here, I'll just turn and show you. Then over here, we've got the Persian Gulf. You know where all the oil comes from? Over here? All right. Then, watch this. this. You may need to watch very carefully. That around there, and I don't know if I can do that again, that around there is called the Fertile Crescent. I think I can. Let's try it again. <laughs> that around there is called the Fertile Crescent. This in here, there's not much there. There's wilderness and desert. By the way, the children of Israel wandered around the wilderness, not the desert, just by the way. It's called the Levant in here it just means plain lands plains just not a lot there not a lot of mountains just plain so the northern part of Israel so you had Israel and then under here they were called Judah these guys were taken to a place called Assyria up over here and about a hundred years later Babylon which is just south of Assyria they have to come this way because you can't really get through the wilderness desert you have to come around this way so you've got Babylon coming over here and they take Jerusalem, the, the inhabitants of Judea, over to Babylon. All right. So those people who were exiled included Daniel. Daniel says this. He describes the night when the Babylonians were partying. And you remember Belshazzar saw handwriting on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. And he's, oh my goodness, there's a hand with like cousin it. No, cousin, cousin it, cousin it. No, thing. Who's it? Thing, sorry. Sorry. Some of you are more theologically minded than me. Thing, if you've seen the Adams family, that great theological treatise on biology. And, and so we have <laughs> the writing on the wall. Daniel is called in. And now by this time, Daniel is really, really old. How old are you, Aaron? That, 10 years old, Aaron's 10. <laughs> Daniel would have been close to 90, so he would have been sort of up around, uh, if he was 14, uh, 17, so, so uh, 
14 plus 70 is 84. So he would have been about 84, 85 at this time. Really, really old, Aaron. <laughs> and, um, he's called in. And, and the story is that he tells Belshazzar, who, by the way, is described as the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Important point. I'll come back to that in a moment. This is what it says. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And Belshazzar, for some weird reason, thinks, oh, that's awesome. How'd you do that? That's awesome. That's great. And within about 15 minutes, he'd be dead because he was found, weighed in the balance and found wanting. And how is he dead? Because Cyrus came in with his forces without a battle. As it turns out, historians tell us that when the Babylonian forces saw Cyrus coming in, they said, oh, at last, someone who knows what he's doing. And they just all sided with him. It was an amazing event. By the way, it was prophesied by Isaiah that this would happen. It was prophesied by Jeremiah that this would happen. So this is really interesting. And, and Belshazzar was dispatched. So we have that and it says here that very night Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. And now if you're astute you're going to go, Hang on, didn't you just say it was Cyrus? I go, yes I did, I'll come back to that point, thank you for asking. Next, so now we come to Zechariah chapter 1. So you, you think, oh at last we're, we're about to start. Boy this guy does really long introductions, this is crazy. In the 8th month, this is Zechariah chapter 1 verse 1. In the 8th month, in the 2nd year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Very important point, oh, we'll see why in a moment. Son of Iddo, saying... And we'll, we'll see what he said. But I, I just want to point out, hang on a minute. In the first, we just read back in Second Chronicles and Ezra that in the first year that Cyrus took over, when he came in and conquered Babylon, one of the first things he did was he said, all Jews can now go back home. In his second year, it's called Darius? Hmm, what's that about? Well, I'm glad you asked. So now I need to speak to those people who will be either university students who will face nasty atheist types or the other category of people are just the plain curious people. How come one text says it was Cyrus and another text says it was Darius? And then if you've ever researched this, you'll go back and you'll try and find some historical data on Darius and you won't find any which has led atheists to say your bible is made up there's no historical support for this Darius that you claim was the one who conquered Babylon and they're kind of right so now what do we do Christians what do we do well again I'm glad you asked let me let me show you what's happening here. But to do that, I need to give you a little bit of a history lesson. Nabopolassar, he, now this is the, the time period of his reign. He was a puppet king 
of Babylon. And he was a puppet king to the Persians, the Assyrians, same, same thing. And then he said, I don't want to be a puppet king. I'm sick of being a puppet king. I want to be a real king. And this puppet king with a few soldiers took on the might of the Persian Empire and did as much as he could to defeat them and couldn't quite do it until his neighbours, and I could do the map again, but over to Mediterranean, uh, Fertile Crescent, Babylon, Assyria, and then over here is a place called Media, the, the Medes. The Medes liked Nabopolassar because they didn't like the Assyrians. So they said, we'll come and help Nabopolassar and it became the Babylonian Medo coalition. And they defeated the Assyrian forces. Pretty amazing, absolutely incredible. And it was Nabopolassar that ordered his son and his son's name was Nebuchadnezzar. And he ordered Nebuchadnezzar to go and conquer the rest of the world. That's all we have time for tonight. For a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, please go to our website, findingtruthmatters.org, and select Zechariah Part 1 from our online store. As we've heard tonight, the story of Israel was a tragic one, summed up in four words. Chosen, privileged, presumptuous, rebellious. But God had a plan of redemption not even the Israelites could derail. More from Dr. Corbett next week as he continues with more from Zechariah. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.